Hey everybody, this is Bevan. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. I've said my name three times. It's time to start the show. Today, I'm super excited to introduce you to my friend, Rachel Kimsey, who is, um, we know each other through a friend-in-law. That's my favorite way of describing when you're really close to someone and they have other close friends, you just kind of are in the mix. And we've been friends-in-law for like uh, 23 years or something like that, a really, really long time. Um, And I always love connecting with Rachel. Um, I learn so much from her. She's the type of wise that is wise because of evaluated experience. Um, And she's had this incredible life where she just keeps unfolding who she really is um, in the moment. And um, in this, so she's done all sorts of fabulous and glamorous things. We'll talk about it. Um, Moving to New York, becoming an actor with success. And now she's also a voice actor. Um, and she's just really cool, but also she has, she's really grounded in values, um, that, and also I will say feminist values, which I think is the radical notion that women are people and advancing the social and political equality of all genders. Right. Um, and I see her always doing better and, uh, seeking more for her life. And in this season, she's been homesteading, uh, and kind of setting up this incredible house. Um, we talk about that. And I really, I called this chicken chat because there is an epic story of the chickens in her life. Um, It's about, I think, two thirds of the way into this podcast um, that is the chicken chat. But I will tell you, there's already been chicken drama since we recorded this, which like, I can't, I don't want to spoil it for you. I want you to be in the journey, but you've got to follow her, Rachel Kimsey on Instagram and see the stories with the chickens. Perhaps she'll do a chicken highlight. I don't know. I don't want to tax her too much because she is pregnant, uh, working and raising toddlers. So I have mad respect for all that Rachel Kimsey takes responsibility for, all that she is. And I'm so excited to share her with you. Uh, But first, I want to share with you the best way to support this podcast is through patreon.com slash FKDP, which stands for Fat Kid Dance Party, which is my aerobics class for anyone who feels left behind by mainstream fitness. So if you've ever been called too much, too fat, or felt too awkward to dance, mine is the supportive class for you. The membership includes options to come to all of my Zoom aerobics classes starting at just two bucks a month, lots of self-care, spiritual lessons, and things like that for folks who are exploring new ways of incorporating spirituality into their self-care. I'm a person who does not have a religious background, and that really got in my way in terms of connecting with God. Um, And it's uh, really beautiful, actually, because Rachel had a very religious background, and and um, doesn't and, and released that and now has her own ways of connecting. Um, so I think it all is very symbiotic. But also, in addition to that, for 25 bucks a month, um, you get access to an entire uh, six uh, six classes a month on your own schedule. So in addition to Zoom classes, there's also classes on your own schedule. Uh, we also have um, a virtual locker room so you can meet folks from class. I'm working really hard to make this a truly digital community that connects and supports folks who are seeking self-care and a better relationship with their bodies, honestly. Um, One of the best things I've done with my life is to treat my body like the love of my life and really learn how to love her well. Um, And it's my passion to share that with y'all. So thanks for tuning in to this episode. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast and for leaving great reviews to encourage other folks. Um, And I want you to just imagine that you're on a porch with me and Rachel curled up with your favorite childhood blanket and on with the show. 
Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Okay, so wait, tell me everything about when you met the Muppets. <laughs> so it's not a very thrilling story, but it is like a life goal bucket list story. Um, a friend of mine uh, worked uh, works for Disney and he was like, we're doing this video with the Muppets and we were wondering if you could, I was like, yes. <laughs> like, do I need to hear about it? It's like, no, whatever it is, I'm coming. I don't, yes. And it ultimately, they were trying to figure out some like short content that they used the Muppets with. And so they, they literally were just doing a little short film down on the, the Venice Beach Boardwalk and I got to go be a part of it. And um, I will tell you the best parts of my day. I got to meet Rolf and I got to do jokes with Rizzo the rat. And I got to discover that like, here's the, Bevan, I was so, I was so nervous because Rizzo is very funny and very edgy. And I had this like sensor inside of my brain that was like, this is just me and the Muppets. You can't say what you're thinking. And I should have, mm. because it would have been great. <laughs> But I'm going to tell you the two most remarkable things that happened that day. One is some extra who was, let's just say at least 10 or 15 years younger than I was, um, who was um, doing her job competently as background for this thing and filling out this world. And at one point, um, she was just like sitting there. I was like, I was like, oh, you don't look like you're having fun. Is there anything I can do for you? And she's like, I just can't believe I'm doing a thing with puppets. And I was like, I'm going to get you a glass of water and go over there. Like, I don't understand what's just happened. So I realized in that moment that the whole world does not feel the way that I do about the puppets. Who are the people raising this woman, this young woman who has no appreciation for the Muppets? Okay, keep going. I just didn't know. And I, I'm sad for them. What if um, they have a store when they realize who the Muppets are? Do you know who the fuck I am? Says Miss Piggy. <laughs> So the second thing, and this is the thing that like, you can't quantify. So I sit down, we're having lunch, we're having pizza, I think. And I'm talking to the Muppeteer who is doing Rolf. And we're having a lovely conversation. And I don't remember what we're talking about, but he's a lovely human being. We're having a great conversation. And all of a sudden, this brown face like pops up and starts interjecting. And I can't explain to you what it felt like because all of a sudden I'm talking to this person and then Rolf and I, and I'm like, at first I'm like <laughs> answering Rolf and then I'm talking to him and then Rolf takes over and I swear to you, Bevan, the human being in front of me vanished. He absolutely did. It was like, I couldn't see him anymore. And Rolf and I were deep in conversation. And I want to be clear, like Rolf's voice just sounds like the man I was talking. He just, he just sounds like that. We were. And, but the human being in front of me vanished and it was just me and Rolf having a conversation. And it was the most alchemical experience I have ever had. Oh my God. I have met big giant movie stars who are lovely people. And this was the most alchemical experience. Like there is a magic, not only to those characters, but also to the people who bring them to life that is so special. It is, in my limited experience, unquantifiable. 
it was the most remarkable thing that's ever happened to me. And, and I am just, I will be forever grateful that it happened. I love that story so much. Um, the alchemical experience of the Muppets. I can't wait to meet the Muppets. I feel like this is just truly destiny waiting to happen. Um, For you very much. I mean, I could just see me arm around Miss Piggy, arm around uh, Janice. Let's just take the two hotties, you know, hot femmes on the couch. Somebody's going to bring us a snack. I don't know. Um, Rachel, <laughs> see. Um, wait, okay. So are you still using Kimsey? Uh, my professional name is Kimsey. Yes. Isn't that fun having a government stage name and then having a family name? I got to tell you, I thought it would be awesome. It's such a pain in the butt. It turns out I was like, this will be fine. Like Queen Latifah's name is Data. It's fine. It is a pain. Uh, and with that, I also can't put a finger on what it is about sharing a name with my family that brings me a deep satisfaction that I didn't expect. Like it's, it's such a, like, I hadn't planned on changing my name until I was literally standing in line for the paperwork. And I suddenly went, I want to share a name with my family and my children who don't yet exist. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, okay. but I was, I, but I was like, oh, I want that. I'm surprised by that. We need to step out of line and think about this for a few minutes before we get back in line at the courthouse and do it. And 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 Matthew was like, okay, yeah. Do you want to talk about it or do you just want to sit with it? And I was like, I think I just need to sit with it. Okay. <laughs> what a dream boat. What a great question to ask your partner. Oh, I'm so grateful every day. He's He is the guy for me in every way. Uh. Rachel, I love to hear it, especially because we were friends for so long. And like, I saw you, um, like, you know, with other people, and then now he's the one and like, and it all has just flowing out with such great ease, which I think I, I felt a lot of dis-ease as a young person, because I was so afraid of what ended up happening. Like, I was actually really afraid to be single later in life. There was something about that that just felt so stressful and also like I want my person right like I think that's sure. also a thing to want yeah. um right but like watching my friends kind of like have this ease and grace in their lives that unfolds as their life unfolds in authenticity um it always makes me feel so good because I'm like it all just unfolds and that's exactly what life does yeah oh my experience was definitely that I have very few relationship regrets um, because my experience, not none, <laughs> but <laughs> because my experience was so much that I learned so much about myself in each of those circumstances that brought me to another place. Um, and I, I don't think I would have been ready for how deeply right this is for me now if I hadn't learned a lot of those lessons along the way. Um, and I'm, it, which isn't just like, who knows, maybe if we, um, we actually met, it turns out 10 years before we met, if, if something magical had happened then and we had all stumbled in, like maybe we would have learned all those things together, I don't know. But I'm, I am grateful for the lessons I learned in the order that I learned them because it has made this a very, peaceful and satisfying 
new place to be. I can't say like happy ending. There's a lot of life left to live, but, um, huh. but, but certainly um, brought me to this place. And I'm grateful for those lessons and for that, that process. Yes. And also just even the knowledge and the settling in my spirit of happy ever after starts now. Um, like I decided that a while ago and like, it really is like, I mean, life just ebbs and flows. It's just part of life. And it's, it is what it is and it's great and it's beautiful. And you, it's about, I love how you sum this up, how all the questions come down to authenticity. Um, what was it? Authenticity, authenticity, present moment. And what was the third thing? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Yes. Um, the Rachel Kinsey story. Um, or chicken chat with Wonder Woman. I haven't decided what I'm going to call this podcast yet. <laughs> One is a little catchier than the other, but. <laughs> That's true. One is really on theme for this podcast and one is also on theme for this podcast in new ways. Um, I also considered wearing a Wonder Woman athletic outfit that I own um, in our conversation, but I was running late coming in from the forest because there are blackberries that are popping right now. And so I'm busy eating snacks and dancing in the forest. Hey, that's the best reason ever. I love it. Isn't it? It's such a unique reason and such a delightful reason. And I cannot believe that the forest just has snacks um, just growing. Right? It's almost as if the earth is there to provide things it's for us. Right? It's almost as though the earth gives us everything we need and we made bills and jobs. Yeah. Um, so Rachel, you are like the fifth or sixth former Mormon on my podcast, which I am, I didn't even think to tally and I couldn't remember if it was five or six, but like, I don't know why I love so many people who were once Mormons. Um, I have some theories. They're all very different. Um, so I am excited to hear about your background and how you came to not be a Mormon anymore. Uh, sure. Um, the thing that's interesting about it is I think if you had asked me at any point for a long time, I would have said that I was both the most and least likely, uh, I'm, I'm one of five kids. Um, and I was like, well, I'm the most likely and the least likely to go to BYU. I did go to BYU. I am the most likely and the least likely to leave the church. I did leave the church. <laughs> It's, it's that funny thing where, um, I would say as a kid, my family role was the peacemaker, um, which meant, and I also just as a personality, I've spent a lot of time actually thinking about it as a personality trait that I don't think was asked of me. I think it was a bit inborn. I was, I was a rather obedient child. And I mean that in all of the weighted, heavy religious connotation way. Uh, like if somebody told me that my daughters were obedient, I'd be like, oh no, <laughs> oh, or I have to, um, but I, I wanted to do things right. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to be right. I wanted to be correct. I wanted to be appropriate. Um, and I'm sure some of that is, you know, stuff that I can't see from an outside point of view of, the, of people putting on me in, inevitably. Um, I think some of it, you know, is 
I was second of five. So I was sandwiched between my two brothers who were, you know, two years on either side of me and were all quite different from each other, but got along quite well. But I had that like peacemaker, like mediate this, you know, if I can get everybody to be happy, then everything's okay. And if everything's okay, then I'm good kind of feeling. Um, and I think a lot of that took me down this path of like, well, one of the things I think that is appealing about Mormon culture uh, to people who are investigating it is that there is a long list of rules. I think that's one of the things people like is they're like, oh, but if I do all of this stuff, then I'm a good person. Checklists that make things easier. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this is it's so dark and naive at the same time. Like I remember being a teenager at one point and going, well, I do this and this and this, and I don't do this and this and this, and I'm doing these things. So like, I mean, they tell me that's all I need to get into heaven. So like, I guess I'm good. That feels like that shouldn't be a thing that you should just know, but like, I don't know what else I can do. It's a little dark. It's very naive. Um, so I, I think one of the things that appeals to people is that kind of checklist or um, if you do enough good things and you make sure not to do the other things, then, then you're okay. And that was definitely something that I was like, I can do that. I can, I am capable of that. Um, I never wanted to go to BYU. It was never in my plan, but I literally got accepted to BYU before I even got any of my other college applications filled out. It got, it came back so fast that I was like, I mean, I guess that's a sign I should go. Like it was seven days and they were like, yeah, please come plus we'll give you money. And I was like, oh, okay. I found out later that um, we had moved my senior year of high school and my mom had applied for me early admissions because we weren't sure whether I should finish high school or just go straight to college. So probably I was just in there. We already accepted you like a year ago category. So they're like, yeah, yeah fine. That's probably why it happened. But I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> Do you think that, did it feel settled in your heart that you were going to BYU or did it feel like path of least resistance or did it feel like I'm just going to do this because it's easy? It felt path of least resistance and like I, I like as you said it it felt disappointingly like oh I guess that's what I'm supposed to do okay mm-hmm. but I will also say this my freshman year was a wonderful year because it was the first time in my life that I remember feeling so great I was like I don't have to explain myself to anybody everybody just gets what I'm talking about for the first time ever like I don't have to I don't have to say my brother's on a mission and what that means is like I, I was, it was the first time I was ever in community with people who shared things in common. Oh. Unfortunately, by the end of that year, and by the beginning of the next year, I began to see things in that community that I had never seen before because I had never been around that many of us before. Oh. Um, BYU was the beginning of my undoing of my relationships with my community uh, because I'd never, I'd never seen the hypocrisy before because other people just, in the places where I'd lived, people were like, peace out. I'm done. Instead of like, eh, I hate this, but I'll stay because of root and all my neighbors are staying. Um, and so that was a new experience for me. And it still took me a very long time to, to go, is it me or is it this? Or is it something more fundamental than both of those things? Um, and ultimately, 
ultimately from my journey, which was sort of a slow removing of myself um, based on specific traumas that <clears throat> my culture told me were my fault. Um, that was sort of the, the first like mega events <laughs> that over time processing those and addressing how I was in relationship to those things. Um, I finally came down to, I don't need this structure for the good things it has given me. And I have gotten good things from it. I don't want this structure for what it is and what it professes to be. And if the fundamental thing is true that some man is going to judge me after this life based on whether or not I wear tank tops, I don't want to hang out with that guy anyway. Some man is going to judge me. I love that so much. That is my favorite way to sum up. I'm just going to use that from now on to sum up like <laughs> the Western God, like some man in the sky trying to judge you for everything when in fact heaven well, is here it, on earth right now, happily ever after. Heaven well, on earth. And that was the thing is I, I kind of, I came to the conclusion over time that the things that were good about it for me were the things that helped give me structure at times like teenagerhood when structure was helpful so that I didn't, I didn't have to flounder in scary choices. I could just go, nope, I don't do that. Cool. I don't drink. I don't have sex. Great. I don't have to deal with the potential pitfalls that might come with that. And also being a 16 year old girl, I'm, have decisions to make about how I will address that with my own children because I'm not going to put them into that structure to give them that freedom. And I also acknowledge it does not provide other people the freedom it provided me because of my own personality. <clears throat> but the things that were good about it were I was like, oh, I can still do good things for my neighbors. I can still show up for people with compassion. I can still lead with forgiveness. I don't need a structure for that if I leave the world a better place than I found it, or at least I do my best to leave the world a better place than I found it, anyone on earth or not on earth who isn't good with that, I don't need their approval. So I can live within that structure. That's what I can do. And I, I am, I am, I was about to say, I'm fine with other people having religion. It's, <laughs> that's not up to me um I other people ask me how I feel about people I love being still a part of it and all I can say is if it is making you a better person and it is making you treat other people better great if it is making you a harder person or making you treat other people unkindly or with judgment not great if it is actively taking away from other people, it is a bad thing. And it's that simple to me. Leave the world a better place than you found it to the best of your ability. I love that so much. And I'm also dying to know, is life better on the other side of not wearing special underwear? I never wore special underwear. Um, but uh, you can see that I am not deeply attached to high necklines and sleeves. So... <laughs> For me, yes. <laughs> no, I went to be one, but I never went on a mission, so <laughs> I, I never, 
crossed that threshold. Oh, okay, great. See, these are things I learned. I feel like there's so much to know about Mormonism. It gives you something to do. It's like a, a hardcore, it's religion and hobby all in one. Yes. Um, <laughs> it takes me a long time to separate the religion from the culture. Like they're so entwined with each other in both positive and negative ways. Like Bevan, I got to tell you, I, I left BYU and I moved to New York City because it just felt like the right thing to do. And it was, it just, there was like, I was like, everything in my logical brain says I should go to LA, but like New York feels right. And I'm just going to go. And I knew no one and I had nothing and I was able to call somebody in a church organization that I'd never met. And I was like, I need a place to live. And they were like, we got a guy for that. And they helped me find a room to share in somebody's apartment. And I lived there uh, until I found another place to live. And I showed up at church on Sunday and I looked around and I thought I didn't know a single person in the whole state. And I looked around and I was like, oh my gosh, I've met that person before. I've seen you before. I know you, huh? And so I immediately wasn't alone. There were things about the culture that were valuable. And there are things about that connection and that community that were valuable and that served me. And I'm grateful that there are people who try to build deep community connections like that. And I wish that they did not also work politically against uh, causes that bring people love and joy and peace and happiness. You know, I, I yeah. it, it, the, the idea that, that it can be a, a culture and a community that is like, we are responsible for each other. We look after each other. We hold to each other. But also like, if you're queer, oh, we're going to say that we kind of don't hate you that much anymore because it's sort of unpopular to say that. But like, we did spend millions of dollars just a few years ago to make sure to disenfranchise you as much as possible. But when it failed, we were like, oh. It won the first few times. Yeah. I'll just say that. Like I, as a young person, I think one of the first elections I could vote in was about my own marital rights. I wasn't even out yet. And um, it came close to, I, I don't remember if the vote was for or against gay marriage, but I just remember that like we lost by like 10% maybe. But then the next time we lost by less percent. And then the next time it was like Prop 8 and eventually got overturned and then there was another referendum. So like it just, the tide of public opinion does change over time. Um, but the Mormons, just like that billionaire from Chick-fil-A, funnel money into anti-gay stuff all the time. And like, you know, and, and everything is good and bad and you can't sum up a people, like each individual person based on a giant religion full of power and control. So when people say they're like, every Mormon I've met is so nice. I'm like, I know, right? Yeah. And I don't want anything to do with the formal religion ever again. Yeah. And it doesn't make me upset or disappointed for my family and people that I love the two. Like it's until you use it to be a dick to somebody else. And then that's a problem. <laughs> what is your spread in your sibling group now? Cause I have a friend whose uh, spread is now majority have left the church and still a couple are. Uh, my family is all very devout. Oh, wow. And then it's you, the outlier. That's, I mean, listen, how do you navigate that? Um, I crept very slowly um, out the, the door until I realized I needed to make it a very clear, clean break. Um, and it's not an appropriate comparison, but it's the, the closest I can compare it to is that moment in the coming out conversation where you're like, look, 
here's my truth. I can't pretend that it is anything else anymore. And now it is up to you to decide whether or not you still love me. We come out in so many different ways, but it's definitely a coming out when you reveal um, your truth to a family. And when that happened, uh, uh, my father didn't talk to me for six months and my mother only communicated through email, but she was trying. Um, and now, and when, when we came back together, um, our relationship is much more honest. It is much cleaner. Um, there's so much less, there's no, there's the, the pretending and the trying to be that there once was is gone. Um, and I know that they needed time to grieve and I'm sure they still do sometimes. And I sometimes miss what was a perceived closer relationship that I know wasn't real. Um, but I'm so grateful now that we actually see each other for who we are and it makes all the difference in the world. Ah, uh, yes. I th- look at the, all that vulnerability creating authentic connection, just like Dr. Brene Brown says. <laughs> Um, okay. So you are, you've done so many fun things in your career. Like highlight mm-hmm. for me looking on as an observer, uh, was when you were on days of our lives. <laughs> yeah, That was so cool. Tell me about that. How did you get that gig? How long were you like struggling actor in, were you a struggling actor in New York? And then like, how does days of our lives pop in? Bevan, I used to uh, imagine sitting on Dave Letterman's couch and describing the month that I did not pay any money for food because I did not have any money for food and all of the ways in New York City that you can get just enough food to survive on for free. Yeah. You see, for the record, I never once went on a date for food. I didn't do it. Uh, but it turns out samples at the farmer's market and cocktail parties that you just dip into in the front. Is there really, they, there are so many glass fronted buildings in New York city. You can just like pop in, have some snacks. Um, I was so poor when I was, uh, first in New York and I was working five jobs. I was working five jobs. I was working as hard as I possibly could, um, in order to also keep my days open so that I could audition because I had a goal and a plan. And honestly, I was so happy. I was so, like, I look back at how, how broke and hungry I was literally. And I started working my, my, my first day job of the day started at four 30 in the morning. Um, <clears throat> I opened a gym. I was like the first person walking through the, I was there before the bread delivery truck. Um, and, uh, and I was so happy because I knew that every choice that I was making was in service of my goals and was in service of my plan. And honestly, that has been one of my anchors my whole life. There are times where I came back, I was like, okay, I'm making more money. I'm doing stuff I like. I'm, stuff is going pretty well. Why am I not happy? Because I am not making choices in service of my goals in service of a deeper truth of myself. And I've had to make some major corrections when I got pulled in the direction of comfort a couple of times. Uh, because I look back to how foundationally true that was for me. Um, and I understand that it's not how it works for a lot of other people. Um, but for me, that kind of struggle and risk felt better than comfort that took me, that took my eyes off of where I was headed. And (laughs) 
it still took years before I had an opportunity that made any difference in my life at all. I was so broke when I booked The Young and the Restless, which was my first soap opera, that I had to, they had to, I had blonde, I had long blonde hair at the time uh, for a was number it, of professional Was I wrong? It wasn't Days? It was Young and the Restless? Days was my second show. Oh, I so didn't know. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. And then I did Days for like six months, uh, like uh, two years later. Um, so the Young and the Restless is the worst one. I had long blonde hair for work and um, the actress that I was replacing in the role that I was taking over had short brown hair. So I had to get it cut and I had to get it dyed. And everyone's like, you cannot go to wherever it was that you used to go. Like you got to go to like the salon, right? It cost me. And then they were like, well, the show will reimburse you. It cost me so much money to get my hair cut and colored. I did not have money for rent. And I had already quit my day job because I didn't have time to do all the stuff I had to do to prepare for the job and get started with the interviews and the costume fittings and the, and the rehearsals and things. And then the two week delay from when I started working to when they paid me, I had to borrow a month's rent from my manager based on the idea that I wasn't going to get fired on my first day. Because I had, I literally did not have the money to pay rent that first month, even though the biggest paycheck of my career was pending. And I bought my haircut on credit and then I never got reimbursed. <laughs> the most expensive haircut I ever had was one I never chose and uh, didn't like. <laughs> but I was so, ex- but I, I did interviews where they're like, how'd you feel about cutting off your hair? I was like, mm-hmm is the best job of my life. It's the best haircut of my life. Are you kidding me? Like eight inches of hair versus the best job I've ever had. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> How long were you on Young and Restless? What did, who did you play? I played a character called Mackenzie Browning. Mackenzie Browning. I love that name. That is a fun self-proper name. Mackenzie Browning. It's good. It was a fun. It was, she was a, a legacy team character. Um, I was the third actress to play it. Uh, the first actress had done it for a while and then a second came in and then the first one came back and then I came in because uh, soap operas are delicious. And um, I was supposed to have a three-year contract and about <clears throat> a little over a year in, there was some money restructuring to higher up than our show. And my character had just wrapped a juicy storyline. So they cut my whole storyline and said goodbye to me. Uh, and that was a shock because I had never, I, my contract, I was not allowed to quit. I was there for three years, but I was like, wait, but you're allowed to just fire me. Like I didn't, I didn't know. I was like, but I didn't do anything. You just needed my money. They, they, well, I don't, I can't say I know this for sure, but I, my speculation is that they hired two more actresses on my salary because I know what they offered me before I took the job. And I was like, I can literally make more working at the front desk of the gym than that. But if you can convince a couple of people to take that, you can beef up storylines. Um, and all that being said, like it was one of the best learning experiences of my life. I had nothing but good experiences there. I loved everybody that I met. I learned how to memorize like 40 to 60 pages of dialogue in a day. You, like you discover that your brain is capable of things you never imagined. I did my first talk show. I did hundreds of, of magazine interviews. I, like I got to have 
I got to have like fame 101 education at the lowest stakes possible. Cause it's like, I was terrible in my talk show interview, but you know what? It was on a cable network that doesn't exist anymore and it's fine. And I will be so much better next time because now I've done it once before. <laughs> it was a no holds barred, no, uh, no regrets whatsoever situation. I loved it. I loved it every second of it. Um, I can do it again. It is a great schedule if you have a family. It's great. Oh, what's the schedule? Uh, it's very nine to five for actors. You get your weekends and major holidays off. Um, and now because of budgets on daytime, because they are much, much lower than they were during the heydays of the eighties and nineties. It's, they like literally are nine to five. They're like, mm, we don't have the budget to pay anyone overtime on the crew. So y'all have to get your, you have to get your scenes done and get out, <laughs> but get it right. Um, so it's, uh, it's great if you've got kids in school, it's a really nice schedule. If anyone's hiring, I'm available because I have small kids in school. That sounds great. <laughs> I feel like I, I would do on something way cuter than a soap opera. Like give you the the humane schedule, but like, you know, I don't know, like maybe a cartoon soap opera or like I'll tell you, the only schedule better than soaps is cartoons. That that's that is a magical schedule too. It is brilliant and I love it. There's like, when I was driving Lyft in LA, I drove a lot of animators and a lot of people in the animation, um, like career path, uh -huh. career genre, organization, what do they call it? Career, trade, anyway, whatever. Um, a lot of people in animation and they were talking about how there was this flux of money. This is 2019. There was a flux of money in animation because of Disney plus coming. And so a lot of the other studios were beefing up their cartoons hmm. and their animation. And then with COVID happening, animation just like full steam ahead, like you could do everything. Um, I mean, and you know, because you are the voice of the animated Wonder Woman, uh, among a million other things, but like, come on, that's so cool. It was um, in every sense of the word, my dream come true. It is the first dream I ever remember having when I was like five years old watching Linda Carter on Wonder Woman, like that was my first hero. That was my first like goal. Like I had Wonder Woman underoos and I would sneak them out to, to like spin in the backyard. Like Wonder Woman was people who are younger than us, Bevan, they don't know that there weren't female heroes. They didn't exist. I remember when Rogue showed up in the X-Men, I was like, there can be two? And thus, she is my second favorite. <laughs> she also has that like stripe, which like I could never tell if it was like meant to be a Bonnie Raitt stripe or um, and like therefore she's like maybe in her forties. Total uh, sidebar: One of my daughters has um, a hypopigmentation spot, and I was like, "Please let it be a rogue stripe. Please let it be." A and it's blonde instead of white, but I was like, "Maybe it'll go white early." It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she has red hair it's so great I was like she was born I was like it looks like a thumbprint that's pale on her head and I was like oh the hair is growing in lighter than everything else it's amazing which one is it which daughter um my oldest daughter has gorgeous auburn hair with curls that I mean I, like I was a professional redhead for 10 years that it turns out I was just trying to look like my own kid <laughs> and she also has just this hypopigmentation spot that I was like oh you're gonna be in junior high and be like mom it makes me feel really uncomfortable because kids are looking at it and I want to color it and I'll be like it's your body <laughs> maybe 
Let's hope that she maintains her independent spirit that Charity has and doesn't give an F what the other kids say and loves who she is. Um, but also, it'll make it easier to dye it fun colors later if it's lighter. Just that one spot. Right? Like, imagine if she just, I mean, she should never, I, whatever, she can do whatever she wants with 100%. In her life, um, so if it was up to you and me, she would keep the amazing red forever. Absolutely, it's so good. It is really striking. Uh, okay, so you became you got the cast as Wonder Woman, which was like a dream come true. Yeah. And what? Because I feel like that happened a while ago, and like you've done like conventions and like things where people are very intense about your character. What has that experience been like? So it's a really interesting thing because Wonder Woman is a really meaningful character to a lot of people, not just to me. And um, getting to be a part of that legacy is really, really moving. Um, there are other actresses uh, in animation who are more deeply identified with that character than I am. And I still just feel lucky to be on the list. Like anytime that I'm mentioned in the same breath as Susan Eisenberg or Gray Delisle, I'm like, oh, really? Wow, thanks. Um, and so that's been a, a real gift and a blessing. And also, um, I, again, I learned so much by being a principal character on that show. Like that was my first cartoon. Like I, I my first break in a cartoon was playing my bucket list dream role character, uh, in a format that I never could have imagined. Like and I got to work with so many extraordinary actors that I learned so much about the process and something a lot of people don't know about animation. Um, most shows, most films, it's just you and a director in the booth. Like it's just you working alone. But we were really, really lucky on our show, Justice League Action, that we did group records most of the time. And most of the cast would be there most of the time. And so I got to be in the room with so many of these other extraordinary actors and learning from their process and learning from their redirections and just playing off of them. Like, I don't know how to explain to other people who grew up in the eighties, what it's like to do a scene with Mark Hamill because it's amazing. It's, just, it's amazing. Um, and like so many gifts uh, from that process in learning how to do what I did better. Like I was able to walk out of that experience a better, more, a better actor and also so much more at peace with myself and my process and how I work and so much more calm and centered in what I do uh, because I was able to practice it so much. <laughs> um, but then also we had a really strange experience where um powers that be above all of us didn't want to air the show much or support it much and so people didn't really they literally didn't see it much for a long time which is professionally a bummer but like not my problem but also I was like this, this is so good I just wish more people got to enjoy it like it's so great um but people have been discovering it during COVID time, which is really fun because more people are watching it, uh, watching more things. Um, and that has been uh, really delightful. And so the, the relationships that I've built from it have been 
more deep and rich and authentic than they would have been if there had been a huge onslaught, which has been a real gift. Um, and then getting to slowly experience a, more people's joy with something that brought me so much joy um, has also been a fun compounding thing, particularly on top of that base of rich relationships that, that began in there. So it's, it's been interesting. It was like, I remember when I, when I got it, uh, one of my friends was like, you're going to go to conventions forever. And the, the, my first convention, I was like, does anybody want to come say, I'll give you things for free. Just come say hi to me. Cause I'm sitting here by myself. Um, and who knows if, <laughs> what it'll be like when the world reopens. My God, I had no idea. You know, what's funny is how social, you said this just yesterday, social media is a highlight reel. And um, I was like, so I saw you on a panel at a thing and I assumed people, I don't know, I guess I think I wouldn't go to a convention because I cannot do crowds. Like at this point in my life, I'm like, I really wanted to get more sensitive and I did it. So I just do not want to be in a crowd like that. But it seemed in my experience of you doing this panel, isn't that funny? Is like, oh, like clamoring for your attention. Well, it's a funny thing though, because there, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between and there's a difference between my peers who I feel um, seen by and, and, and recognized by. And so I've gotten to do, I've gotten to, to, to teach voice acting at San Diego Comic-Con with two of the biggest working voice actors in America. Like, and they were like, hey, would you come teach with us? I was like, me? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I would be grateful. And I've gotten to do panels and I've gotten to appear certain places. And that's, you know, that's, that's on a peer level. And, and part of what you see is just how much I, it's just so fun. And I love it. I love being among people who love what I love and getting to share that with them. The other side of it is knowing perfectly well and comparison is, you know, the beginning of death, but knowing perfectly well that there are people with like lines for autographs that last for hours. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, it's so good to see. You know, we can talk for like 20 minutes because nobody else is going. <laughs> yeah, and then you will easily be able to skip off and go get a Starbucks um, and don't, because sometimes fame is just more. It's so overrated. More. Yeah, it is overrated. I'll say that. Like, as someone who's interesting about money, is that it gives you opportunities. Yeah. That's it. That's all it gets you. Yeah. It's a tool uh, and a responsibility, really, that not everyone utilizes. Um, okay. I want to talk about um, your kids just because I did this whole episode a few weeks ago, because there's a few folks who listen to my podcast who are trying to conceive. And so I did a whole episode of all the different ways I know of people who get pregnant mm -hmm. uh, or have kids in whatever way they're meant to, right? Because I really believe like, if you're meant to be a parent, you will be a parent. It's just sometimes not apparent how you're going to become a parent. Um, <laughs> so tell me, so you uh, and Matthew got together, got married. How old were you when you got pregnant for the first time? Uh, so I was... I can't do the backwards math. I had my first baby at 39. Great. So whatever the I, months before that. I think it was, I was somewhere around there. <laughs> so then I got, um, so I had my first baby at 39 and, um, 
the thing that I think is really interesting about our journey is actually not that it's the conversation that happened before, which is when we were um, dating and when we were talking about getting married, because we both knew very quickly that this felt like the right thing, but we both said, let's take a little time and be sure. Um, and at one point I said, look, I need you to know that several of my friends are blessing me and the world with a very candid storytelling of their fertility struggles. And I need you to know that I, through their experiences, have realized that I do not have the emotional resilience required to go through an IVF process. I feel much more connected to bringing a child into my home that, uh, that needs a home. So I need you to know that I am going to have children and I want to have them with you. And I don't need them to look like me. So if it, if it crosses a threshold, I want to adopt from the foster system. And he said, okay. And I was like, anything else? He's like, no, absolutely. Okay. And I was like, oh, well, all right then. Great. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And you said, that sounds great. <laughs> and not in a capitulating kind of way, but in a, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to fight about gene expression. Um, and with that, I honor the families who do. But I learned through my friend's process. I was like, I don't, I can't, that particular level of emotional resilience, I don't have it in me. Mm. And then we literally got knocked up the first time we tried. So it didn't end up being, <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, I, hi, let's have a GMI conversation. People on a podcast. I was like, I'll stay on birth control through the wedding. Cause like, I just don't want to deal with it. But um, literally two weeks after the wedding, we're like, well, it's window time. And then 10 months later, there was a human being in our lives. <laughs> a literal honeymoon baby. Um, and I'm like very impressed about like Matthew's respect of your body autonomy because like someone who is more fragile for many reasons, like either about gene expression or about like wanting to control your body and want to be the boss of it. Like, I love that. I love that you had a strong opinion about what you wanted to, because for me, like I, I don't, I don't know. I actually haven't decided in myself if I would or wouldn't do IVF. I just kind of really trust my fertility and my, you know, Irish ancestors and so many late in life babies in my family that there's like a term for it. You know what I mean? Like, um, based on like my mom's very much younger brother, um, it's a bonus baby. It's a PS, right? Um, anyway, so I'm banking on that, but I also like wouldn't want to put all those hormones and stuff in my body necessarily. Like that's something I would really want to think about. And like, it's so personal to the person who's carrying, like, because it's just so much less invasive than what a male uh, genetic creator would be asked to do. <laughs> so, Well, and that's the thing is I, I, I hope that I have said this clearly enough. I am deeply, deeply grateful for the friends who very candidly shared their journey and their process because I think I might have had a more magical view of what the process was based on how little it is talked about and in their deep vulnerability and honesty I realized I was like that is that is too much for me 
Um, and that is okay because this other avenue calls to me. I've, I've been drawn to um, children in the foster system since I was a teenager. I was like, that's, that's something meaningful to me. And I still don't know what that chapter in my life is. I don't know what that will look like at this point. Because mm-hmm. uh, this third baby <laughs> is the last one I am going to make with my body. <laughs> I was not sure after the second one. I am very sure now this is the last baby I will make with my body. <laughs> that clarity you're getting three and four years is plenty for me it turns out <laughs> it's been so long since you had a full night's sleep I will not have a full night's sleep for many many years to come <laughs> are you still diapering both girls um I am because my eldest made it very clear when her sister was born that she wanted that intimate care still oh okay um and so when she tells me that she's ready to do that differently, then we'll do it differently. She's in, she's absolutely capable of it. Um, and I, I kind of, every couple of days, I'm like, I was like, there's a little sign that you might be ready to be done. And then, okay. All right. But it's, um, part of it, I think is the way that we've always handled it. Um, we, I'm just going to get into this. We have from, from birth, uh, we use diaper changes as an opportunity to teach and practice consent. Um, they are always a collaborative process from birth. Um, I honor the families who do elimination communication. I am just too tired. Uh, so we do a lot of it with, with diapering. And so as a result, um, that process and that intimate connection with their bodies has always been, um, very personal and very connected. There's no, in, everybody does what works for them. But for us, there's no like, let me dangle a toy here so that I can distract you while I do this other thing. I was like, no, we're going to talk about your body and we're going to be here and you're going to help me with this process. And so as a result, I think she, um, she just still wanted that, that sensitive connection because she somebody else was stepping into her world. And I said, okay, so we're still there at three and a half. She can read books. Uh, but she still prefers diapers at this moment. And I go, I am not going to interfere with your relationship with your body. Uh, and nobody can make another person use a toilet. So you'll tell me when you're ready. <laughs> um, feeling it'll happen this summer when the two of them do it together. It's my hunch. <laughs> not fun that they're going to do it together. Um, okay. I'm so curious about this, like consent as a newborn, how do you do a newborn consent diaper change? So babies show up so much more present than we give them credit for, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's fun to joke about the cute potato, but, but like they are full people. There were qualities of their character that I noticed in the first 24 hours with both of my daughters that have held true every day for the rest of their lives. And it's not a story that I've, I, I've been conscious of checking myself. I was like, is it a story that I'm telling myself about them that I am writing to be true? And I'm like, no, this is the person that you showed up in the world. And I observed this about you and I am still here in this with you. And so what it looks like with a newborn is um, I'm going to lay you down now. And now we're going to take these pants off. I'm going to do one leg and this leg. And I'll tap that leg before I take it off. And then I said, now I'm going to change, I'm going to change your diaper. So I'm going to lift your bum. And I never, I, 
personally, I never grabbed the feet and the ankles because who would like that feeling? So I'll slide my, my hand under their bum and lift it up and I'll slide a diaper underneath and, and then wait and watch and see what the reaction is and say, okay, now I'm going to take it off. I'm going to, I'm going to do this side. And so I would tap the one side of the tape and open it, or I would tap it and wait and then open it and tap the other side and down this side, tap it and wait and open it. And then I would say, now I'm going to, I'm going to help you get your body clean. Uh, and then, you know, I would, I would take the diaper and wipe whatever's there. If it's there, there is one blessing to breastfeeding, um, that it's no fault of a, a formula fed mom, but, oh, those diaper changes are so much easier for many months because <laughs> oh. it's different food. Um, fed is best hundred percent, but I will say I am grateful for every breastfed diaper change. <laughs> Um, and then clean their body and tell them what's going to happen. And I, I like, we never bought a wipes warmer, but especially in the cold winter months, like I'd warm it up to like put it in my hand and like warm it up till his body temperature. I said, this might be a little chilly. I'm going to put it on your body. And I would hold it there till it got a little warmer. Um, and then, you know, take that diaper out and say, okay, now I'm going to cover your body up and put that on and do one side and tap it and do half the other side and do that. And then say, okay, now I'm going to show you your pants. And we're saying, let's do the right leg and slide that one on. Let's do the left leg, tap that knee or that foot and slide it on. I'm going to lift your bum. And then as they get older, I'd be like, well, do you want to lift your bum for me? Okay, I'm going to help you. And then eventually they do by three months. My babies were at least like squeezing their butts, even if their butt didn't come off the table. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and by a year, they're undoing the tabs on their own or, you know, helping change it or letting me know when it's time. And, and it sounds like it takes a lot longer, but it doesn't because you're never fighting about it. I mean, every baby does have like a brief period of time where they just like fight diaper changes. Um, but I discovered that honoring with consent is still the same thing. It's also a time where we can talk about correct names for anatomy, mm. you know? Um, and so like, I will always label their anatomy correctly um, so that they know what it is. Um, I apologize to my daughters in 15 years, but like I noticed the day that they discovered that parts of their body felt better when they were being touched than others. Wow. And I'm not going to shame them about that. I'm going to say, I was like, oh yeah, that's what this part of your body is. And that's, it's a part that feels good when you touch it. <sighs> you know, it's the beginnings of uh, honoring their body and honoring their awareness of their body and my relationship to it, which is I'm here to keep your body safe and I'm here to keep your body healthy. So the days that you just don't want to have your body changed or your diaper changed, and I understand, I am going to do it anyway because you, because I know that my job is to keep your body safe. So I'm going to help you anyway, even though I know that you don't want this right now. Um, and that's the beginning of that relationship between the two of us is there are going to be times in your life where you want something or you don't want something. And I honor that. And I know something that you don't. So I'm going to help you through this transition and you can tell me that you don't like it and I will hear it and I will love you always. So honestly, people talk about like changing diapers as like, oh, I can't wait till they're out. I'm like, I don't, I don't really mind it. Like I want it for, for their bodily autonomy and for their, you know, comforted life, but I don't mind it because it's not an adversarial experience. We have the same relationship with food. I've never once said, try one more bite or force this or dessert comes after dinner or we have a completely consensual relationship around food. I just, I offer, you choose. Um, you know, <laughs> today we, Matthew and I had a power. I was like, 
did they eat anything at any of the meals? And we're like, well, a couple bites here. And they were like, okay, we need to make sure to offer a protein at dinner. Cause I don't think I haven't seen them. Well, they didn't eat protein at dinner either. And then we get to dinner and we're like, it's hot. I just want to eat a salad. I'm sure they feel the same way. Like they're honoring their bodies. And like, I'm not going to make you eat a bite of something that you don't want. I just want to eat watermelon and grapes. It's hot. Eat some watermelon and grapes. Did they eat the watermelon and grapes? Yeah. Okay. That's what they wanted. Um, and, you know, the, we don't have, we don't have food fights. We don't have food battles. I did feel badly for some kids who were near us recently when I let my kids have their cookie with dinner which is just what we do. Like if I'm offering something, they, it just all goes together. And the kids were like, but my dad said I couldn't have that till after. I was like, every family has their own rules. I kept that part to myself. <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna undermine your family. Every family has their own rules. Yeah. <laughs> Good, Rachel, I'm so excited to keep knowing your kids um, when they're, grown and growing and like to see how this like very mindful parenting you're really good at like present moment parenting and like accepting and loving them for who they are like and I don't know I just I love it I love hearing about like little things that your kids say that like just seem super I don't even remember what it was that you told me but you said something that she had said about food that I was like oh my god you're doing everything right like if she feels this way it's the thing that's exciting to me is about parenting is that you get the chance to, it's not the correcting the mistakes that your parents made. Like every parent will make mistakes. I am making mistakes every day, mm -hmm. but it's the getting to unparent yourself and seeing like, what are the, what are the, my patterns? What is written on me? I was in my thirties before it occurred to me that I could, I didn't have to finish clearing my plate. And I know that that is not a unique experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to um, offer any of those things to my kids. They are going to, everybody's going to have their own challenges. And I acknowledge that, but I was like, there are some that I can see a way around. And so I'm going to offer you that. And I'm going to, I'm going to give myself permission to not be perfect because my biggest baggage as a kid was trying to be perfect. And I'm going to offer to my children that there is no way for you to be right or wrong to me because that's what unconditional love is. And it is a challenging and active process <laughs> as a parent. Um, but it's so rewarding. Like, this is going to sound odd, but every time I don't punish my kids, it makes me so happy. Because... What is a punishment? And so every time that I feel a habit or a pattern that is familiar to me that I do not echo, I go, yes, that feels good. It feels good to see something that I want to address as a family or in a relationship. Please, I would prefer if you do not punch your sister in the face. But the consequence to that is not separation. It's not going to be isolating from me. It's not going to be putting you away. It's not going to be taking something, a toy away. It's not going to be not going to the park that we were going to go to. You know, every time I don't punish, I go, ah, I am showing you unconditional love by loving you exactly the same, no matter what your behavior was five minutes ago. 
And that feels amazing to me. Mm. And that makes me, the child, heal. And I will make so many mistakes in my lifetime. <laughs> but every time that something like that happens and is a different pattern than the one that feels intrinsic, um, it feels like a, it feels like joy. Even better than it feels like a win. It feels like joy. That's so good. Oh, it's so good. It's so connection. Um, okay. I want to make sure that we talk about this. Okay. You, during the pandemic, you moved from, you know, Burbank, Studio City. Yeah, Studio City area. Studio City. Okay. To Ojai, which I think is just like a dream come true for me. I mean, I just love Ojai. I think it's so beautiful there. And it's an energy vortex. Um, and so you have this beautiful home with a very vibrant chicken coop with a very dramatic story. Will you please tell us the tale of your um, chicken family? So I'm going to tell you the our, our chicken saga. I knew when, when we were, we were looking for land, we were looking for dirt. So a value my husband and I both share is um, a house is a place you live, but dirt is yours. <laughs> and so we, we wanted dirt. And when we actually found um, a, a, a little house on a, on a large plot of land, we were like, that's our dirt. Let's go get some dirt. Um, and I knew on some level with zero experience whatsoever. And for the record, a childhood fear of birds, um, or a childhood fear of chickens specifically, uh, that I wanted to have chickens. Like Meghan Markle. Uh, like my sister, I don't know. Like I, I, there was something about like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have food that I raise on my land that like, I joked that I was like, we have, I was like, if, if my vegan friends come visit, I was like, come have some vegan eggs. Cause these are loved animals who are leaving these things behind whether or not anyone eats them. They're, they're not like if I was like I was like come I was like I can do so, I can I can yield something from the land just by loving something fluffy <laughs> and one of the things that just when we found this house it was it was just sort of like tiny miracle after tiny like little sign that it was like oh this is really our dirt and one of the things they had already had like a small chicken coop on it and four birds and these the people who were living here are moving to Hawaii so they couldn't take them and they were like would you like the birds with the house and I was like oh, yes I don't have to build a coop and do the research and find that I can just, I can just step into it. Amazing. Um, and, uh, that was a blessing and immediately things started going wrong. <laughs> I had, um, a beautiful bird who suddenly I was like, something's not right about her. I don't know what it is. And it turned out it was a thing called water belly. And, um, so I had to learn a chicken anatomy really fast because I, was draining the water from her body uh, a, a, every couple of weeks uh, because their body will literally fill with fluid, which will eventually compress their heart and their lungs. Um, and it is it is a beginning of the end uh, life process. So I was it was extending her life and keeping her comfortable. But she like immediately fell in love with me because the process was giving her warm Epsom salt baths and then petting her and then making her body feel better. <laughs> so she immediately fell in love with me and I fell in love with her. And eventually nature did what it does. And it was, um, it was her time, but I was like, well, all right, we dove right into the deep end. 
Um, and then I was like, well, now we only have three birds, which isn't enough eggs for my family to eat. Um, so I'll go get two or three more. And then this woman had such cute birds. And I was like, well, okay, I'll get five because I'll get some little ones. And then I came home with six. <laughs> because there's a thing called chicken math. Um, so I went for two birds, two or three birds that came home with six. So, all right. And then it turns out that one of those was a rooster. So we had to take that bird back uh, because I only wanted hens. And then once that rooster was gone, it turned out that there was another one who was a rooster in hiding. <laughs> he just didn't feel like he could come into his own. And then I was like, "Ugh, but you're so cute. This is pine cone. This is, so this is a bird that we call pine cone because it looks like a walking pine cone. He has a condition called frizzle and it, which means his feathers curl backwards. So he's a silky, which means his feathers are extra soft and he's a frizzle. So they curl backwards. So he is a completely absurd looking animal and he's a bantam, which means he's a small size chicken. So I was like, well, he's not giving the girls a hard time and he's so cute and silly looking. So well, I'll just, I'll just keep you. It's fine. You look at you, Pinecone. How can I let you go? And then all of my girls got broody, which is a condition that chickens just go through. Um, some, some breeds do it less than others. Oh, it turns out the ones that the previous owners had, they don't really go broody because they've been bred not to, but all the ones I got did. And it's an infectious condition. Women's periods do not sync up, but apparently broody birds do. And one of my birds, the teeniest one, we call her, we call her rain dove model in honor of rain dove, who I love. Um, she, and she looks like a little, uh, she looks like a little morning dove. She's teeny. Uh, she can fly. So she gets out and plays in the yard. We have a big free ranging area, but she gets out other places. And one night she didn't, I realized we hadn't seen eggs from her in about 10 days. I was like, oh, she's got a nest somewhere in the yard. I got to go find it. She constantly had nests somewhere in the yard. I always found them eventually. And then one night she didn't come home, which was very worrisome because she's a little tiny girl and there are fixed feral cats in our neighborhood. We have a neighbor who is very um, committed to trapping and fixing the cats. I'm having trouble hearing you. Oh, can you? Oh, that's my watch telling me that she can't hear me. No, it's, <laughs> um, so, but there are all these fixed feral cats in the neighborhood. I was like, this is a tiny little bird. This is not good. For a week we look for this nest. Cause I, I said, I immediately know I'm like, oh, she's gone broody and she's sitting on this nest somewhere in the yard and she's not coming home to the coop because she's sitting on this nest. And then one night um, I'm teaching a class over zoom and my husband pops into the office. He's like, I found it. And he just zooms out the door and I was like, I have to finish teaching. Oh, I want to go right now. Um, and he found it inside of a flower bush. That unless you were standing directly on top of it and looking straight down and she's in it, you couldn't see. Like we couldn't see it. I'd walked past that nest dozens of times and there were 12 eggs in there. And she's a teeny little thing. And I was like, what do I do with all these eggs? I was like, okay, I'm going to give you one day. I'm going to give you one more night on the nest well, I decide what to do because I don't want to ruin this for you because that just feels cruel because you are a sentient being and you have committed a lot of energy to this. Okay. And that was a terrible choice because that night at 2 a.m. I was awakened by the sound of a bird screaming and a cat yowling. And that was the night that a cat found her. 
And I didn't realize how bad it was for about two days because we kept finding piles of feathers in different places in the yard. He'd clearly chased her all over the yard um, and torn out tons and tons of feathers, but we didn't realize for about a day had, had given her a flesh wound, but fortunately just a flesh wound. So I did more chicken anatomy and treated that wound. Um, Hold on. Did you go out and save her when you heard the noise? At two o'clock in the morning in my underwear, I ran out into the yard, chased the cat off, scooped the bird up, um, took her over to the coop. She was so freaked out. She flew out of my arms and was like, please, please, please let me into the coop. I was like, great. I'm happy to. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had found the nest. So I went over to the nest, got a small cardboard box, filled it with pine shavings, transferred, um, we did a thing called candling, which is where you shine a bright light through an egg in the middle of at two o'clock in the morning. It turns out it's very easy to tell what is a fertilized and what is not a fertilized egg. And it looked to us like seven out of the 12 were fertilized. So I put those into this soft box of pine shavings, took that into the coop and then put her body on top of them. So I'd say, these are your eggs. This is your nest. It's here. All of this is at two o'clock in the morning in my underwear. <laughs> Um, so pregnant, pregnant, pregnant. Yeah. uh, was I pregnant then? Uh, yes. Yes, I was. I've been pregnant for 22 weeks. This is yes. Oh, this is pregnant. The entirety of this chicken saga has happened. Right. Of course pregnant. it is. Yeah. Uh, this is the thing about a third pregnancy, Bevan, is the, it's like the last thought on your mind. Your first one, every single thing that's changing, you're like, this is the, this is the most amazing miracle slash science experiment. And the third time you're like, I don't know. I have two toddlers. I guess someday this baby's going to show up eventually. What, how many weeks? I don't know how long it's been. <laughs> it's just such a different experience. So I put her in there and then in the morning, she's not on the nest. The eggs are cold and we go, oh. and I'm not entirely sure what to do, but I do know that the appropriate, the appropriate response for, um, a bird in this moment is to abandon the nest if their life has been threatened. That is the right thing for this animal to do. And it is, it is clear her brood is broken. She is done. She is, she's done with this nest. She, she doesn't recognize these eggs. And that is the right thing for her to do. And then I look at these two fluffy, fluffy birds that have nestled together in a box that isn't a nesting box that they've just adopted. And like, they snuggle together all day long being their broody little. And it was like, so I stick seven eggs under those two girls. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. We'll see what happens. And for the next two weeks, we just kind of go, I don't know what's happening. Uh, we tried candling the eggs one more time, but we couldn't really see through them. And we realized later we couldn't see through them because there were birds growing inside of them. Uh, but we were kind of like, let's just give it some time. Let's, it's only fair to give this a chance. And then one day, so broody birds will only come off their nest usually once a day to go eat and poop and maybe dust bath. And so I was always like checking the windows, be like, when are they off? And then if, when they were off, I'd go like check the eggs. And there was one day where I thought I saw like a mark on one of the eggs. So I reached out to wipe it off and I realized it's a beak. And I was like, oh my God, we're actually hatching a baby. Uh, And the way that chickens at least I don't know if I, I presume most birds are this way but the way chickens work at least is that the brood that they sit on will all hatch within about 36 hours because magic um and so I was like okay now we have a new problem the box that they are all in 
is this old fruit box that's really deep. And so the babies can hatch in here, but then the babies can't get out to get food and the moms can't show them how to get food. So I've got to figure out what to do next. So the dog kettle that was my chicken hospital for my poor water belly chicken and for my poor cat attack chicken is now turned into the, the chicken nursery. And we wait about um, a, a little more than 24 hours and um, three of the chicks have hatched in the first 24 hours. So I move one of those two hens and the three chicks into a new box in the nursery and I leave the other three eggs under the other hen. <laughs> and I go, maybe this will still work out or the other four eggs rather. I just gave away the end of the story. So three more eggs hatch the next day. One doesn't hatch and I go, oh, I don't, I don't know how to long to let you sit. I candle that one. It is completely empty. I don't know how I ever got it wrong. There was never an embryo in there. So all, so six out of 12 eggs has hatched, which is a 50% hatch, which is apparently quite good. Um, eat that seventh egg. I'm sorry. Did you eat the seventh egg? Oh no. That egg had been hot for 21 days, but here's what I did do. I did break that egg, cook it and feed it to the other birds. Because birds, chickens love scrambled eggs. And I did not know this before I had chickens. And people seem a little horrified by this. But chickens love scrambled eggs and it's very healthy for them. Chickens, <laughs> oh. chickens do a lot of things. Um, okay. So six now we have this bonded six. pair and okay. six and six chicks. And now to me, this is the most beautiful expression of family because the, the bio mom of these eggs did the right thing to heal her body and protect herself. And she abandoned her nest. And these two, this like bonded pair of hens who the only thing they wanted in the whole world was to be moms have now adopted these six chicks and they are amazing mothers. They're so good. They're like, they're like, these were always their babies from day one. They never let them stray. They're looking after their they're teaching them the ways of the world. If you buy a chick um, from a breeder or tractor supply or whatever, um, you can't integrate them into your flock for weeks, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks because the other birds will pick on them. But if the babies are born there, the moms are going to be like, I'm going to teach you how to forage. I'm going to teach you how to look for stuff. I'm going to teach you how to find water. I'm going to teach these other ladies that they need to leave you the heck alone. It's a really fascinating dynamic to watch. And because these six babies have two moms, it is just wonderful to watch them all like interact with each other. But wait, there's more. Then one morning I come out and um, there are six chicks. And that afternoon I go out to give them more fresh water and there are five. And I am devastated because there is no sign of what happened. None. And that's the worst. I was like, I can't even figure out what I did wrong. And one of these chicks is just gone. I feel terrible. I'm like, nature is cruel, but it is honest. Okay, we have five. And for 10 days, we have five chicks. And my family goes out of town for the first time in two weeks. Or for two years, rather. Um, for about six days to go spend time with my kids' cousins who are all gathered in the same place. Uh, my brother's in the military, so he came back from where he is stationed abroad and was able to get his children, so we all gathered. All the adults were vaccinated. It was a blessing. Um, 
two days before we get back, the house sitter who is here looking after the chickens and our fluffy 18 pound cat, who's very upset that I'm in here talking to you instead of snuggling him on the couch is, uh, she goes, um, so there were five chicks this morning and now there are six because one of them had just been surviving on its own for 10 days. It was a miracle. It came back bigger, stronger, more resilient than all of the other chicks. I was floored. Our house sitter kept calling her the runaway. So naturally her name is Joan Jett. Um, She has a mohawk and she's black and she's gorgeous. And I love her. Uh, What's that? Is she a silky? What are they looking like? So, um, about, about 60% of them have, um, extra toes and feathers on their feet. And so are very likely to be silkies. They all have black skin. So they might all be some version of silky or satin, but they're very strange hybrids because pinecone is a silky frizzle and dove is like a lavender gray bantam Japanese, which is a very sleek bird with like a very lifted tail, like a very efficient aerodynamic looking bird. And pinecone is a walking pinecone. So we're just waiting to see. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know. But Joan Jett comes back with like white down her throat and on her belly and like this black mohawk and like little flecks of color on her collarbone. Like she's so punk rock and I love her and she's probably going to turn out to be a rooster and I will never be able to let her go because she's our miracle story. Um, and we lived a miracle for two days and two days ago I went into the coop in the morning and two of the chicks were missing and then we found one and it was no longer a chick. Um, so we have evidence that one is gone. I, I have asked so many different chicken people what the symptoms are of what we think it is. Some, some kind of predator somehow got in and killed it, but didn't eat it. I don't know. It's very confusing and it's gross. Um, so I'm not going to do that to people. Um, but we found that one, but there's another one missing. And so I'm holding onto this tiny thread of hope that it will just like emerge <laughs> like the last one that it was just like peace out things are getting scary in here we're gone but I'm also trying to be honest with myself that that is just my sadness speaking and I'm it's probably gone but so currently we have the fab four chicks it has been a huge lesson in um life and this cycle of life and nature and what you can control what you can't and Bevan new coda from tonight since the attack where we know we lost one bird and one is missing. Guess who is sitting on the babies now at night? It's not the two tiny little silkies. They have further been adopted. Last night, our rooster sat on three out of the four of them. Tonight, the rooster's on one. Our biggest, fluffiest um, hen who is in henopause and no longer lays um, eggs that are right. She's got the other one. And then our last broody hen who just so wanted to be a mom and I didn't have any more eggs for her. She has adopted Joan Jett and the two of them are like simpatico and she has the other one. So the, the little mamas have now said, we are no longer the right ones to defend your bodies. The rooster, the one who roosts high and the biggest fluffiest one, that's where you guys are tonight. 
So they are stepping up in every version of blended family. And it's just, it is magical and delightful and shows that you make a family however you make a family. And that's what it looks like. And I love it. All right, ways to have a family. Um, I'm just riveted. I'm riveted by the chicken chat and by the chicken tail. This has been truly a delight to follow along. Um, people can find you how on the internet, Rachel Kimsey? <laughs> Uh, I try to be very easy to find. I'm just at Rachel Kimsey on the Twitter and the Instagram and the Facebook, if you still do that. Um, there's a lot of chicken content right now. I'm sure eventually we'll get back to video games and cartoons when the world reopens. But right now we're enjoying the present moment of <laughs> our nature. And it's great. You know, um, world reopens, but like also you are a mom with a chicken coop and kids to raise your home. Oh man, <laughs> wait till we get goats, Bevan. It's going to be a whole thing. You going to get goats? I think so. I think either goats or llamas, but I, I'm biased toward goats. I have been for a long time. I love them. Will you put pajamas on your goats? Only if they're babies. I'm really trying to work on my community getting goats because we spend a lot of money on mowing lawns that do not need oh that's it honestly like i joke about them because of how much i love them and how adorable they are but there's also we we live in this like hybrid desert and then overgrowth cycle where we are and having goats to be able to keep the things that overgrow down is such an efficient way of caring for the land in a better way and they're adorable at the same time um, and I am for it. We're also considering mini donkeys just because apparently they're the funniest, sweetest, fuzziest things ever. I might need to get like a mini donkey to keep the goats safe. I, I don't know. It might, it might be like full prairie life out here <laughs> within two years. I'm going to go from city kid to country mouse like <laughs> overnight. I would like to stress to the people who don't know me, I've never owned a pet. Ever. My husband brought a cat into my life and uh, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> now I have uh, 14, it was 16 chickens and we're looking at goats and potentially donkeys and maybe we'll adopt a dog next week. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say like, when is the dog happening? Because I feel like, I can't believe that cat is Matthew's and it wasn't yours for some reason. Well, this one, um, this cat, we, Matthew had a, an amazing giant 22 pound Maine Coon when we met. Um, and he was, by the time we met a, a well senior cat. And so when he passed, we were looking for just the right big fluff to love us. And this one, Matthew was like, yeah, this one's definitely your cat. And I think it's because we met him when I was pregnant and animals know. Mm. Um, and he is now, he's like super glued to me again while I'm pregnant, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a responsible animal owner because he lived in New York City and he's like, I live in an apartment and I am not home a lot. And when I am, it's still an apartment. So I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the biggest cat I can because it's not fair to a dog. Mm. I have never had a dog because I had never had a life that kept me around enough to have a dog. And it wasn't fair to the dog. Now we have chickens and toddlers and space. So finding the right dog for us is a ever fluctuating equation. So <laughs> It's when it comes, it will come. We thought we found the right one, and then they sent it to Oregon to live at a rescue. And I was like, "That was my Pyrenees, and somebody stole it to Oregon." Wow. It'll probably be happier there because it's much cooler. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm terrible at wrapping things up. 
Um, that's all right. I don't have any white guy producers, so I just get to wrap it up how I want to. Um, I'm so glad you were here. Thanks for sharing your story and resilience, connection, authenticity. I feel like I've learned even more about you, honestly. And I feel like you do such a good job of knowing your lessons from things and really like having sorted through stuff and understand I learned this from here. I have this experience. So thank you. I appreciate the value of self of self reflection um, has only grown stronger to me over the years and realizing that part of the journey of forgiving myself for trying too hard to be perfect when I was young is realizing that there is something for the future me that I would like to grow into in all of those experiences. And so if I have something to offer to people who are in that process, it's love yourself for those things you perceive as mistakes and love yourself through those things you perceive as flaws and challenges because you are deserving of that love and that experience will help you build the empathy and the compassion to be the person that you can be if you want to be if if that's the path that you're on and it's oh it's just so much nicer to live inside of love for yourself it's way easier it's a place to be yeah well, maybe i mean is it easy it's not easier to do the work but it is easier to live the life um once you're into it's so it's easier to be at peace inside of yourself and the the work is worth it to feel that peace yes yay thanks rachel i love it thank you so much